The level of detail. I mean, normally you have to suspend a little bit of disbelief when you walk onto a set, no matter how brilliant the production design is. There's certain things that will be augmented, but it was all there. And I have a pathological fear or terror, morbid terror of deco as an aesthetic. And of course, I was in, I was in a, the most exquisite um, Rorschach test, you know, all of those walnut panels and every um, panel concealed something else. But I think that that was, in a way, it was a, a metaphor for the character. I don't think I've ever been so fed and inspired from a character perspective with, with a production design. It was just perfect. Hello, and welcome to The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly, taking you inside this year's top contenders for the Oscars and more of the industry's biggest awards. I'm Clarissa Cruz, EW's Executive Editor. I'm joined by my co-host, Josh Rothkopf, EW's Senior Movies Editor. Hi, Josh. Hello. Today, we have our exclusive interview with Kate Blanchett, who's having the kind of Oscar season that most actors can only dream of. She has two performances generating buzz. First, there's her turn as a mysterious psychologist and femme fatale in Guillermo del Toro's noirish Nightmare Alley. And at the other end of the spectrum, Blanchette plays a morning show anchor and casual homewrecker in Adam McKay's satire, Don't Look Up. She makes the apocalypse go down easy. And while these two performances are very different, they're both verbally vicious and they both require a performer like Kate Blanchett, who's just amazing in them both. And I think maybe the sharpest point of both films. Last week, we ran down the supporting actress category. So now that Kate Blanchett has just suddenly scored a SAG nomination for Nightmare Alley, she's suddenly in play, definitely in play, I'd say. Yeah. And, and speaking of that, because that was, I think, one of the surprises at SAG. Let's talk about SAG. The nominations yes. came out last week. And there were a lot of interesting news items out of that. I mean, the first one... Obviously, I think the big news was um, Kristen Stewart not being nominated yeah. for Spencer. I mean, I think in everyone's minds, she was the front runner in the Best Actress race. So for her not to get a SAG nom, I mean, that's a pretty big blow, don't you think, Josh? Definitely a big blow. And it's the kind of thing that will shake a front runner status. Uh, I still think that she is very much in the race. And critics definitely love the performance. And so do audiences. It's that kind of a, a miss or a snub that, that really can, can alter things. And also, I think it's interesting that the person that snuck in, you could say, was Jennifer Hudson for her Aretha Franklin in respect. Now, suddenly that performance may be looked at a little more seriously as more of a contender. I know that she is definitely the best thing about respect. And it's that kind of galvanizing performance that sometimes can carry a whole movie over gaps in its quality in other respects. Yeah, so to speak. (laughs) Hudson is great in it, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I just want to unpack Kristen a little bit. I want to understand like what may have happened. Do you think it was one of those things where people kind of thought she was safe and then so wanted to advocate for someone else? Or do you think it was a question of the movie itself maybe not connecting with audiences? I know critics loved it. To be honest, like when I first saw it, I was like, this is kind of a wackadoo movie, even though when you know the director, it makes sense. And But I always thought that Kristen was the best part of it and her performance in it was so strong, which is why we put her on our cover back in yep. November. But I wanted to try to understand like for something that I think seems like such an actor's movie, what, what happened? It's interesting because the Oscar buzz for any given performance or film 
starts with the first responders, I think. And I think the first responders for Spencer were critics seeing it at the festivals and really being wowed by it. But if you think about Pablo Lorraine's past film, Jackie, it's a similar situation in that you have what's basically a psychodrama that requires that you meet it, I think, halfway is maybe putting it diplomatically. And it's definitely an art film. It's not your traditional biopic. And so just like with Jackie, I think that we may see a nomination, but not a win. I also feel like Kristen Stewart's online army of you know millions and millions of fans might have amplified Spencer's perception as a frontrunner, when in fact, the people that are seeing it and voting on it, SAG voters, or maybe they're thrown by it, or maybe there's something that I've been calling crown fatigue, where we've been watching so much content about the Royals, where it's just sort of like, oh, here's another one. And, you know, I can't not see Kristen Stewart here, or I'm thinking about Twilight, or there's all sorts of reasons and so-called logic that we could apply to this. But I do think that overall, it's pretty sound to say that the response initially to Spencer was based on critics who were wowed, whereas as that response widens out to audiences and Oscar voters and SAG voters and just to run-of-the-mill general actors, I think that that reaction will kind of even out somewhat. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I do agree that this doesn't discount her from the race. It might hurt, just historically speaking, her chances for a win in the category. The same thing has kind of happened with Ben Affleck, right? Yeah. I mean, that might be another one we could talk about, Mm -hmm. where similarly, the Best Supporting Actor bracket has been filled with frontrunners from the festival films. I think about Kieran Hines and Jamie Dornan in Belfast and Troy Kotzer in Coda. That was a Sundance film. All sorts of great, strong supporting performances. But now that actors and SAG voters are stepping into the equation, they voted for Ben Affleck to be in that bracket, mm-hmm. who are, you know, and he's our cover subject for this coming issue that's coming out in February. It made us look really smart, didn't it? <laughs> it made us look very smart. Ben's performance in The Tender Bars, I think definitely his best work. It's worth attention and possibly even worth awards. It's his most sensitive work. It's his strongest, most full-bodied performance. And those two actors I mentioned from Belfast, Kieran Hines and Jamie Dornan, missed out on those nominations. Yeah. So I think that's an example of the same thing happening. When the voting widens out away from critics and towards a more general votership, you get surprises like this. And sometimes it's motivated by performers that you know, actors that are maybe more famous, movies that are maybe more middle of the road instead of something aggressively arty like Spencer. Right. And, you know, as, as our awards expert, Joey Nolfi points out in his take on SAG that rolled out online, it does tend to be a starrier contingent, just for the same reasons that you said as well, Josh, where it's a wider voting body and um, they do appreciate the kind of more, I guess, mainstream work. Um, not to discount, you know, that doesn't mean that it's not as good at all, but I think there's just a little bit more of uh, a widening of who gets put into the conversation. And I think Ben is a great example of that. And also um, Bradley Cooper. For his turn in Licorice Pizza, I mean, a lot of the chatter around Bradley was that his turn in Licorice Pizza was too short to merit um, a Best Supporting Actor nomination. But we know, you know, the Oscar historians that we are, that yes. it's not about 
quantity, it's quality. And um, he plays John Peters in this. It was totally hilarious and such a great part of the movie. So it, it was nice to see him there. But that also was a surprise. And I think Bradley and Ben took those slots that the uh, Belfast boys, as you mentioned, were in. So what do you think about that, about Bradley? In the case of Licorice Pizza, Bradley is one of the most recognizable people in the film, right? It's got this great young cast of relative newcomers, you know, Alana Hyam and Cooper Hoffman. And so when you see Bradley showing up and his performance is just so fun and and, uh, he plays John Peters and he has a great suit, he burns such an impression in such a short amount of time that I feel like he's almost kind of an oasis for people who are... I mean, the movie is lovely and it's an enjoyable, nostalgic film, but Bradley Cooper makes it, I think, more approachable for older voters to to step into. And I also, you're right about the time, the duration of the performance. There are precedents. And I think the famous example that's trotted out is Anthony Hopkins' performance in Silence of the Lambs, which is was actually best actor winner, but I think has something like 17 minutes of screen time or something. It's very short. Yeah. Or Judy Dench. What was the minutes on hers? Judy Dench is very short, right? And and and, <laughs> and then there's famously those like one scene performances like Network where someone really just tears it up in the single scene and, and it's enough for them to go all the way and win an Oscar that happened for the last picture show as well. There's a precedent for a performance like Bradley's at least breaking into the bracket. We have yet to yeah. see how this is going to work, but SAG is always an interesting indicator about the race because it's voted on exclusively by actors and people in that union. And so those are all the Academy voters. And the the acting block is the largest block of the Oscar Ampus voters. So attention should be paid, I think, in this sense to these these changes. Yeah, especially in the acting categories, because with the ensemble nominations in SAG, it's not as much of an indicator for the Best Picture winner, just because not everything is considered an ensemble work. So I tend to think there's less importance on those nominations, although they are important. But the acting categories, I think, are key here. And just for the reason that you just said, Josh, because it's the largest voting block and the way it translates to the Oscars historically has been pretty influential. Pretty influential. I mean, it definitely is the kind of thing where we'll be paying notice and seeing how it changes. And I mean, also with the way that the Golden Globes kind of imploded, this is aside from SAG, we could use as many indicators as we can get at this point. I know. I know. I, you know what? I have to say, the strangeness of last year's race and then the sort of continued evolution of this year's race, I'm kind of enjoying it because I feel like there's room for sort of these passion votes and surprises. And I remember, uh, I think this, the season before 2020, I feel like the front runners in each category were pretty much the front runners throughout the whole season. I mean, that was the year of Laura Byrne and Brad Pitt. And it's such a, a predestined situation and it's almost like rubber stamping something. You, there was that one year I remember where it was like, of course, Colin Firth is going to win. And of course, Natalie Portman is going to win. And of course, David Fincher is going to lose. And the King's Speech is going to win. And it's like, mm-hmm. and it was just sort of like, such a, a deadening, tiresome ticking off of the boxes. I remember that night was just my least favorite Oscar ceremony, I think. What were some of the other things that surprised you? I do think that the one other snub that kind of hurt me was Anjanou Ellis not getting an individual oh. nomination. We love her in King Richard, and we included her in our contenders issue. And that performance was the moment when I was watching King Richard when I realized, oh, this is a serious movie. 
with real ambitions in terms of deepening its characters. And Will Smith is wonderful in the film, but I think Anjanu lets him be as wonderful as he is uh, because it adds dimensionality mm-hmm. to his performance. And so she was recognized with the ensemble nomination for King Richard. And I don't necessarily think that that's going to be such a ding in her forward momentum. She's still placing very highly among critics and prognosticators. But would have been good for that campaign if she had gotten that recognition from SAG. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. yeah. I think House of Gucci did really well. It did. Yes. Yeah. They got, I, was, I was surprised that they got that ensemble award. You know, Lady Gaga, obviously, who's always been at the conversation, Jared Leto, and that ensemble um, nomination. That part was a little bit more of a surprise to me. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I do think it's a surprise whenever that movie makes it. I mean, I, I make no bones about it. I think House of Gucci is, w- would have been more of a Golden Globes type film. And, you know, it mm-hmm. definitely has it, it, its moments where it's fun, trash, and I enjoyed that about it. But I don't really see it as an awards film. I know that that might make me an outlier. This is when we need a uh, Joey Nolte yes. to, to step yeah. in because, uh, and, because I, want, I want this to be, I, I would love to hear this debate. But, uh, but we'll, we will have a month soon. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there was plenty of time to have this debate throughout the rest yes. of the season. When Jared becomes a nominee, I'm sure he's going to want to be here and to, you know, <laughs> to rub it in my face. <laughs> That'll be fun. Getting back to our interview subject today, Kate Blanchett, I mean, you were talking about Anjanu. I would say that she was probably the surprise in that category and perhaps took Anjanu's slot there. Let's talk a little bit of, about that. And also... Just pivot to another thing we wanted to speak about today, which is sort of style in movies. And her character in Nightmare Alley is just intensely stylish in every way. And we did do a story on that in our February issue because she just looks so amazing. Can you talk a little bit about Kate? I was so knocked out by Nightmare Alley in terms of its just its overall vision. And that is something you could expect from Guillermo del Toro, who is just such a, a visual genius and a fantasist. You think about The Shape of Water and his earlier films. I think he starts sometimes with the creatures and the costumes and the hair. And Kate Blanchett in Nightmare Alley is definitely this presence that kind of slinks onto the set. You can't take your eyes off her. And a lot of that is a construction of Louis Sequeira's costumes, which are these amazing sheath-like golden creations. And the production design, especially her office, she plays a mysterious femme fatale slash therapist, my kind of therapist, I should say. <laughs> and that production design of that film, it's by Tamara Deverell and Shane Views, is so gorgeous. It's like this golden-hued office with sliding panels and recording devices. Um, I mean, it's a real confident piece of design, and, and it got me thinking that even though last week we had talked about the supporting actress race, there are so many elements of a film that go unmentioned in the conversation, but paradoxically, they're the first things that we notice as viewers, and that's the cinematography, the costume design, the production design, all the surface elements that really invite us into a story. And we talk usually talk about the you know the narrative or the performances or sometimes the director or the cinematography, but this design work is just as important. I think that we should spend a little time maybe before we cut to our Kate interview, about some of the other leading contenders in cinematography. Are there contenders and frontrunners that you really resonated with in the cinematography field? Yeah, I cannot have this conversation without talking about Dune. That was 
the thing that resonated most with me. I mean, that was just such a beautiful, lush world. I mean, when you're talking about world building, I mean, that's here. And it was just so beautiful. And I think that is a front runner in this case. That was the way I connected to the film. I mean, I was part of the minority that wasn't as interested in the franchise as maybe some others. And so that was the way that I connected with this yeah. um, because I was just in such awe of the way it looked visually. And, um, and I, don't, I don't mean that as a backhanded compliment at all because it is, it is a force. Definitely Dune. And I feel like Dune is the kind of film that's going to get like eight or nine or maybe even more nominations in all of these craft categories, as they're called and may take home a bunch of Oscars. Another piece of cinematography that really knocked me out was Bruno Debenel's work for The Tragedy of Macbeth, which was black and white cinematography. And Bruno, he did Inside Lewin Davis. He's collaborated with the Coens before, and he's just got such an eye for these kind of things that the cinematography in Macbeth, which works so beautifully with the costuming uh, by Mary Zoffries, is so... It's geometric and it's angular and it it really establishes this idea of fate and the hierarchy of of power in a way that doesn't need to be expressed by the text and Shakespeare and a lot of the thematic work. And this is just Joel Cohen being a genius, I think, is realizing that Macbeth is almost like a chess game and it can be told visually and you're watching Mm -hmm. this movie in black and white and it's that kind of hard, crisp black and white, not the sort of lovely, nuanced black and white that maybe someone like Janusz Kaminski did in, in, yeah. in Schindler's List or something. But this is the sort of hard, angular, almost like white and black cinematography. That's what makes Macbeth stand out for me. I really I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I, I remember when I was watching it, I totally agree with you. Just being mesmerized by, I don't even remember who was wearing, but someone was wearing like a woven leather vest. And I yeah. was just like, I, I, I was just like, I was like oh God, that's so amazing. I was staring at that and like wasn't listening to anything that was going on and I was just like okay wait I need to focus back on the movie and stop you know looking <laughs> at the clothes but in a black and white movie I thought that that was really interesting because I feel like I, maybe this is just naive of me but I, I feel like it's just it's not as much of a focus the costumes in things like that for various reasons um, because I met you know I know that they're filmed in color and, and, and it has to be modified for the black and white treatment and so I don't notice it it as much. But in Macbeth, I was really struck by how cool. Totally cool. I had the opportunity to speak to Mary Zoffries about this and, and also um, just the cast about about the way it worked. And they they all said that shooting in black and white was actually an advantage, not a disadvantage. You would think, you know, maybe you would think that ha- not having colors would actually hurt the expressiveness of a costume designer or a production designer. But then in this case, it moved them into texture. It moved them into shapes instead of colors and patterns. And I thought that was such a fascinating idea, the way that they could enter into the material that way. On the other end of the spectrum, I think you could say Mark Bridges' work in Licorice Pizza. Mark Bridges is the costume designer. He's an Oscar-winning costume designer. He's, uh, he's the guy who did Phantom Thread and a lot of other Paul Thomas Anderson movies. And I know that Licorice Pizza is a period piece set in the early 70s, but there is something that's so gorgeous about that design. The costumes are so peg on, they don't hit you over the head, but they feel very true to the moment and and lived in. And also the production design, that's by Florencia Martin, where she's creating, recreating really places like the Tale of the Cock and all sorts of valley locations from the early 70s. That's a beautiful evocation of that moment. And if that was Paul Thomas Anderson's overall mission, then it was really achieved by these craftspeople. 100%. And Josh, I think Licker's Pizza is your lost daughter. 
of this. Uh, I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> as, yeah. as, as Lost Daughter is my, my movie for, for this season, I think Licorice Pizza is yours. I mean, and, and you're eloquently stating like why all the elements of that movie work, including the design. And just before we finish this conversation, I just wanted to give one last um, shout out to The Power of the Dog for cinematography. Ari Wegner's work on that is masterful and beautiful. And I mean, I think it, it was just one of those things that were just another character in the movie. That's how good it was. I and mean, just, just the way that things were shot, the way that the, that the um, environment was used to express the inner, I guess, psychology of the characters in that way. It was so nicely matched. Nicely matched and, and such a piece of wizardry when you think about this movie being set in Montana, but being shot in New Zealand. And it takes someone like Ari Wegner to suggest, well, we can create the feeling of that. We can create the feeling of these wide open spaces or places where people can hide, you know, in, in plain sight and places where, you know, someone could wander off and have a plan or something or, or sneak away and do something bad. Ari Wegner, I think, is definitely making this film succeed where it has to succeed as both a drama and a thriller. There's a real sense of momentousness about the way she shoots it. I love the look of that film. And Campion in general has just got a, a very visual eye. Jane Campion, the director. I mean, if you think about something like The Piano, also a gorgeous film, you know, the overall filmmaking in that movie is just top notch. Any other holdouts, any other cinema pieces of cinematography or design? I, maybe we should mention Barb and Star really quick, the award-winning Barb and Star <laughs> that, that just won an award from the Los Angeles Film Critics. Oh, I love that movie. I, I, <laughs> I, that was like a light in the middle of, of a pandemic season. Like I, That really yeah. just brought me so much joy. But yes, the production design is amazing in that. And I love that you brought it up. I feel like that didn't get as much love as it should have at the time that it came out. But that's great news. Yes. And I, I love it. Maybe maybe we'll get to a point where it's an Oscar nominated film and then and then Jamie can come on and do his song with the seagulls. Oh, oh I would love that. <laughs> uh, that's a way to get the ratings up. Get Jamie Dornan to do a song and dance number. Get Jamie Dornan to sing, yes. <laughs> Speaking of seagulls, when we spoke to Kate Blanchett, uh, you could hear some seagulls in the background of that recording if you lean in. She was calling us from Brighton, England and the South Shore of England. And she is suddenly a, a big factor, I think, in, in the Best Supporting Actress race. Just got a SAG nomination for Nightmare Alley. She is also playing the newscaster in Don't Look Up by Adam McKay. We talked to her about those two performances. So stick around after the break to hear my chat with Kate Blanchett. Hi, Kate. Welcome to The Awardist. Hi, thank you. I want to first congratulate you on these two films that we're going to be talking about now. They're very disparate. It's an incredible season of work. So, uh, And really, congratulations on both Don't Look Up and Nightmare Alley. I feel very fortunate, yeah, to be a small part of both, yeah. Let's talk about Nightmare Alley first. The original novel by Gresham is extraordinary. And the character of Lilith especially feels very forward, very interesting and different for her moment and different from other, you could say, femme fatales in certain ways. How do you think of Lilith? She seems powerful and smarter, I think, than a lot of the characters. Yes, she's, she's somebody who, um, I mean, like all, I suppose, femme fatales, she's deeply ambiguous and unknowable and 
mysterious. But when Guillermo and Kim were were penning this version of of the story, they wanted um, Bradley's character of Stan to feel like he'd met his match. And obviously she's coming up the life of the mind from a scientific intellectual standpoint, the investigation, whereas he's coming at, at it as a grifter or someone who's moved through from being a, a carny to being a grifter and a con man and a trickster. And Guillermo, and I is, Guillermo is very, very big on backstory. So even though a lot of the characters never explicitly mention who they are, what motivates them, what their history is, he absolutely wants all of those characters to be rich and full the minute they walk in the door and also for them to have a secret that is only shared with him. And we started talking about the notion of the freak that, that is alive and kicking in Nightmare Alley and, you know, really is at the core of, of Stan's destiny, but also the freak within our culture and how the freak is often um, becomes a hero, I think, in the, in the world in which we live now. And we talked about how Lilith would actually understand that um, and have been damaged by the way the freak in um, society is is often the person running the show. And so we, we talked about how she might be physically scarred by that. And so there's not a big thing made of it, but obviously there's a moment where Lilith reveals herself and in that moment hopefully the audience sees that, that Lilith is damaged goods. So I think there's a richness and a texture to her, um, you talk about femme fatale, in a way that perhaps there's not in traditional femme fatales. Femme fatales to me often are sirens who draw men into the rocks but for destructive reasons. Whereas I think Lilith is interested in bringing the system down, and that feels a very contemporary thing for uh, you know uh, a woman who's who's suffered extreme pain to want to do. And you know, it's all couched in the buoyant, strange, and unique humanity in which Guillermo makes his movies. Yeah, and I definitely understand the distinction you're making between the traditional femme fatale and, and who Lilith is. I also feel like the material, especially as reformulated by Guillermo and Kim makes sort of an interesting parallel between psychology and carny hustling the as mm. the the idea of of reading people and i feel like it's almost a uh, like a showdown when stan and lilith first meet this idea of who knows how to read people well you both know how to read people in different ways and maybe one is is more legitimized than the other although i bet you psychology even in this moment in the 40s was kind of not quite the way it is right now. Did you talk about that? The idea of Lilith being a reader of people, sort of like Stan is? Definitely. I mean, I think any good therapist, uh, psychoanalyst um, has to be a good reader of, of people and also uh, have a good radar for the truth and when someone is avoiding the pain of the truth. I mean, con confronting the truth is one of the bravest things, you know, we can do as individuals but also as a species, which we're clearly not doing at the moment. But we, yes, we did. And there were a lot of women alive and active and incredibly influential in the world of psychoanalysis. They're not often the people who are, who are publicly celebrated or they're not given the kudos that they should have. But Lilith is one of those people. And they meet, I think that there's a, an acknowledgement of both Lilith and Stan meeting their, their match. And then I think part of what her function or, or her drive is in the movie, is in the story, is to, is to get Stan to a, a point where he has to confront himself. And yeah. obviously that is the, probably the greatest moment of terror for him in the, in, the, in the whole 
movie when he has to see who he really is because he's so busy priding himself on his ability as a hustler to be able to see who other people are and use those dark secrets against them to, for his own financial, let's face it, financial ends or his financial benefit, but he's unable to look at himself. Whereas I think Lilith there is actually, she's someone who can live in the world as dark as it is, but she's had to, she's had to confront herself, which is something. So maybe she's, in a way, she's probably one step ahead of Stan, possibly two. I definitely picked that up from watching the movie, and I, I feel like she is certainly a step ahead. And I think initially when they meet before that scene in the office, even in the Copa, I feel like when we see him looking at Lilith's business card that says consulting psychologist, you know, I think that he's he's at that point thinking about it like, oh, this is an idea, like maybe I should do this. Like this is this is some hustle that she's got. Uh, it's almost yeah. like he's approaching it from a from a surfacey perspective. He has no idea how advanced she is. Kim Morgan told me that she actually wrote the script with Guillermo with you in mind. Did she mention that to you? No, but that's very yeah. nice. Yeah, no, that's I know, right? I mean, Guillermo and I, have, we've talked for a long time about working together and really like all great directors who ask you to be part of their vision, the role is, is, is secondary and, and being part of the conversation is, is the point where you say, yes. So I was, I was there long before mm -hmm. I read the, read the script, but that's, that's lovely. I feel like the movie gives you an opportunity to, to lean into some really glamorous settings. I think about not just the wardrobe and the fashion that Lilith has, but that office so, so luxe with the microphones and the sliding mm. panels and everything. Mm. There really is a, a, quite a vivid world created for this film, a very lush, noirish world. Were you shooting during the pandemic for this? No, I, I was very fortunate. Um, all, all the stuff between Bradley and I in the office and that very claustrophobic coffin-like office, exquisite coffin, um, was all <laughs> done before the pandemic. And then they had to struggle through. Obviously, um, they almost got all of the Carney stuff shot before the pandemic blew everything open and then they had to pause. I mean, the detail, the level of detail. I mean, normally you have to suspend a little bit of disbelief when you walk onto a set, no matter how brilliant the production design is, there's certain things that will be augmented, but it was all there. And I have a pathological fear or terror, morbid terror of deco as an aesthetic. And of course, I was in, I was in a, the most exquisite um, Rorschach test, you know, all of those walnut panels and every um, panel concealed something else. But I think that that was, in a way, it was a, a metaphor for the character. I don't think I've ever been so fed and inspired from a character perspective with, with a production design. It was just perfect. Yeah. And I understand how that can actually help along a performance and feed a creative imagination as an actor. It really does raise the bar when you walk on into yeah. an environment like that in, in those clothes that Lewis had created. And, and you think, wow, I've got to, I have to try and rise to the, the occasion. And I also would add that a lot of Lilith's lines are still in my head. I, I think of these zingers that she has that are just so delicious. I love it when she says, you're, you're just an oaky with straight teeth. Or, or even at the, at the very end when she's like, I'll live. There, there is something that's vituperative about the character, but also these are some choice lines of dialogue, right? Are, are, have, you, mm. have you been deploying them after the shoot? To anyone? <laughs> no, I, I, I'm a goldfish. I swim around the bowl and but I forget everything. I mean, it's either early onset dementia or I really am. Um, my spirit animal is a goldfish. I wish, I wish I could be that that <laughs> eloquent and quick. But um, 
Guillermo was really, he got really, did a deep dive into the patois of the 30s and 40s and he tried to really pepper the script with words like oaky and and I think Willem's character has a lot of that patois in the, you know, so you can think, wow, they're actually speaking another language entirely, which I think for an audience makes you lean in because you realise that there's a, they're almost, there's a code that they all understand. And that's fine when that code is used, you know, outside society in the the circus has always been on the margins of society because we know it's a place of mysticism and and trickery and and people who are not welcomed into the center of polite society it's when it's when the tropes of the carney and the the language of the carney come into the place in which we are meant to live and work politely and kindly with one another that we're in 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 peril and you know, and and I think that Stan coming into into that world, into the upper echelons, but um, denying his past is probably the most dangerous part of the the thing. But yeah, I, I, the, the lines were incredible, and Guillermo is such a um, he's so quick, and he would often he would often throw in these impossible lines just to see if they would work. I mean, the script he, that, that, that he and Kim constructed is incredibly impeccably well wrought and detailed and has had so much research going to it but at the same time he as a director he's really able to throw those things away and say try this line say this word and you know even through the the post-production process in ADR you know he really squeezes every last wonderful drop out of every every stage of the process of of filmmaking from you know conception through pre-production through post-production there is such a confidence to his filmmaking, especially with this film. And I understand what you mean about the language marking these characters as outsiders. It's also kind of a terrain. We watch movies from the 30s and even movies about carnivals or these settings, but they don't sound quite the same as this. So it's a process of almost importing a certain realism to it. It reminded me of a movie like Miller's Crossing, where you're just absorbing all this beautiful language that even the movies didn't have. But, and you, you have a, a really wonderful way with the language. Since we're talking about language, maybe that's a good segue to Don't Look Up, which is an incredibly verbal performance. And also just, uh, I understand that working on that film as it is with Adam McKay in general was very improvisatory. Is that, was that the case? Yeah. I mean, every film is in a way, I mean, because it has to be alive. So it has to be from moment to moment, you have to improvise your way through a moment, even if you, you know, the lines don't shift every, you want every take to feel like it's um, the framework's there, but something different is being found every time. But definitely, yeah, like Adam would, you know, it was like silent movie making. He would, and it was a bit hard because he was masked and behind his PPE, so you couldn't always understand him. But he would often throw lines in from the side or just let the take run and run and run. And what was great about it is that, you know, after a few takes you realised you could go really off-piste because there might you might end up somewhere useful. And particularly because that film, the absurd became increasingly realistic and possible. And so um, we were li- we're all living it. We're living it as a, the ridiculous. We're living the ridiculousness as a species. With every passing day, it felt like things that were happening out there in the so-called real world could be not necessarily directly referenced, but definitely fed into the way we were we were working. Yeah, I feel like that's really where black comedy 
can thrive satire, especially the idea of it being a reflection of what was going on now. And increasingly, as the events of now seem more and more like the ones in the film, did that make you feel like you were working on something very timely and add to the urgency or was or is that depressing? <laughs> Yeah, it is depressing. It is depressing. It's really depressing. It was really strange. I mean, the, my very first day on set was in the Situation Room and, you know, around the table with all those incredible actors, a couple of who I'd worked with before, but some, you know, I'd, I'd just only admired from afar. And, I mean, that would have been surreal, you know, in the best of times. But um, we were working French hours you know, obviously so that we wouldn't be filming together, you know, as, as for as short a time as possible. And in this really airless room and, you know, masks on, PPE on, masks off when we were shooting, and it did feel like we were being rocketed some, to Mars. It, it was really an out-of-body experience. I think because none of us had, had filmed for um, a, a year, so maybe it, it took a little while for everyone to find their their legs, but it was just, it's, it is such a human medium. It's made by humans for humans, and we were making it in such an alien way. But yet, you know, we were incredibly uh, safe and, and fortunate to be so. And so it, it, it sort of, yeah, it was very surreal. I want to ask you, a um, Brie is just such a dazzling creation. Every time you're on screen, I, I loved it. And I was wondering if she is based on any particular anchors or what, I, I, you don't have to name names if you don't want to, but I, <laughs> are there sources though that you can talk about? No, well, no, I didn't, I didn't meet anyone in particular, but I mean, like everybody, I, um, you can't help but interface with entertainment news. And the the thing is, most of those people who are, who are inter entertainment news journalists, they usually got two or three degrees, are incredibly mm -hmm. intelligent. And you think, at what point did news become entertainment? And it became, I guess, at the time where, where news could earn money. And, you know, I think I thought about that rather than anyone in particular. But, you know, there, there, are, there are some really fantastic pairings. I mean, a lot of, a lot of those morning shows, today shows, evening shows, news shows, even, you know, even political shows that have, you know, two people. It's all about their chemistry often. And, you know, so, so the pairing. So that did think about a couple of those, but it wasn't, there wasn't anyone. In particular, although you know, I am a huge fan of Mika Brzezinski and, and Joe Scarborough. Um, even without socks, I think um, <laughs> he's, he's fantastic, right. and they have a fantastic, obviously, clearly have a fantastic chemistry, and are both incredibly bright and committed and open. So I did watch them a lot, but it, it's not based on anyone. I understand your point, though. Invariably, those people, especially the um, the morning show hosts, they're not hiding it, but they have an incredible amount of accomplishment. And the subjects they're talking about sometimes don't necessarily align with, like you say, the degrees they have. They could accomplish so much more. And yet, I think that's part of the satire of the script is the fact that your character is sort of is bringing things down to a more palatable level, even when we're talking about the apocalypse. You have some incredible scenes also outside of the studio with Leo DiCaprio and Melanie Linsky, who I think is extraordinary in this Isn't movie. She? We were in Mrs. America together. I, I think, I mean, she's one of my favorite characters in the, well, actresses of all time, but she's, but as a, a, um, her character and the way she portrays June in, in Don't Look Up, I think is heartbreaking. 
some mm-hmm. of my favorite moments are, are the ones that, you know, scenes that she's in. Yeah. And I also feel like it's a, it's a fascinating friction of acting styles in some of those moments where between you and Leo and Melanie, can you give us a little bit of a taste of what it was like to film that sort of three-way showdown? It was a totally tricky because it's obviously Leo's character has, um, Randall has transgressed. He's, he's a good man who's, who's gone against his own better instincts and had an affair. And yet the world is ending and he's human. And so you're not quite sure who you're wanting to be, you know, who, who you should be rooting for. And then that's a, that's a difficult balance to strike. I mean, my role was slightly easier in that I, <laughs> I was just fascinated and interested. It's like, wow, this is what a breakup looks like. Um, you know, um, yeah. But I think, I think it's, it was probably when they were testing it. Um, a little complicated because there will be a lot of people who are rooting for Leo's character who think, well, you've had an affair, so I don't like you anymore. You know, it's a whole thing about um, likable characters doing unlikable things, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, the great thing about Adam is he doesn't, he's not telling an audience what to think. That was very clear when we were shooting that scene, but Melanie was fabulous. The great thing about her as an actress, and the same with Leo as an actor, is you read a scene and you think, oh, okay, I think I understand what this is. And then they, the words and the, the intent and the, the reactions pour out of them and you think, I'd never imagined it being played that way, which is really exciting to be working with actors like that. The creativity that actually everyone really has on this shoot was extraordinary. And I do understand the point you're making about Adam, where he's advanced, I think, so much as a filmmaker and, and I think takes those kind of risks, having good characters do bad things. Mm. I would be remiss if I also didn't ask you about what it was like creating a chemistry with Tyler Perry, your co-host, and yeah. what was it like uh, working with him? He is somebody who I just Whatever he is on screen, I think, especially in the dramas, like when he did Gone Girl, he is he's so fascinating. Um, there's this completely different Tyler Perry that I think obviously is very different from the Medea films. So what was that like for you? He's endlessly surprising as a, I mean, I'd never met Tyler b- before, obviously, hugely admired, not only what he's achieved as, a, as an actor, but you look at his studio and um, him as an, um, an employer who's trying to set up a very respectful, inclusive way of making not only films but content, that terrible word, but he, when, he, when he talks about content, it's, it's not terrible at all. And so I was a little bit not intimidated but nervous about meeting him and he was just so available and humble and open and I felt so lucky, you know, because the part that he and I play is obviously quite concentrated and small. It's a, it's a, an important part of the turning point in the narrative, for, for particularly for Randall's character. But um, it's a, you know, it's a small component, and the fact that that he came in to play that role and I got the chance to work with him, it was really, really great. I mean, we we laughed, <laughs> we laughed a lot. It seems like this set would have a lot of laughs while you guys were making this film. Is there anyone that you collaborated on the set with in either project? We'd love to hear if there was maybe someone you'd like to share a little light with. Well, obviously, all of the AD teams on both productions, I'm always in awe of of the ADs who keep the set running, and I think it was incredibly difficult. And, you know, my heart and soul and absolute stand shoulder to shoulder with all of the people who were had the, the courage and the conviction to the IATSE members 
you know, they're very necessarily threatening um, uh, a strike to, to raise their standard of work because it was immensely difficult for the crew because, of course, they have to be in PPE all day, every day. At least as an actor, you get to take it off when you're either in your trailer or you're in front of the camera. And being Australian, you know, I come from a very non-hierarchical way of filmmaking. So your relationship, it's, it's much more horizontal. It's not this sort of pyramidical relationship that often that's very hierarchical in American filmmaking, often, not always. And so I, my relationship to the ADs, to the camera crew, to the wardrobe, hair and makeup people, it's really important to me. And you couldn't see anyone's face and you weren't allowed to sort of hang around and talk to people. And that was something I greatly missed. I didn't get to really know the crew on, on this in a way that I'm usually used to knowing because you didn't, you weren't allowed to together and that was a great sadness for me i you know I, I realized how important that was for the whole experience for me personally i'm sure they didn't miss it you know but i missed it i feel like that's part of the lifeblood of any set is that kind of intimacy and conversations and face-to-faceness with crew and cast i am curious like i am with everyone actually about during the lockdown and during let's say the worst days of the pandemic I'm being optimistic that we're moving out of them is there any piece of art or, or television or a movie that you really responded to that you were watching during that time? And maybe as a corollary question, were there any roles that you saw where you were like, ooh, I wish I could have played that one? Or that's some, that, that looks juicy. That's something I would have loved to do. Oh, gosh. I'm always looking at that. I'm always in awe of uh, performances given by um, other actors and actresses. A work of art that I think I saw, there were two things. Recently, and I, it's more a monument, a memorial than a work of art. Is the is the COVID wall in 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 London? Um, I think that is a profound testament to the failure of a system to look after its citizens, and also the incredible humanity of the people who helped create that, so that people can publicly grieve um, and then work out for us to collectively contemplate as you walk along that wall how we can do things better and together in the in in the future and then also at the beginning of the lockdown my husband and I got up at about three o'clock in the morning and this was planned pre-pandemic but the National Trust had done this commissioned my brain's dead I can't remember the name of the composer unfortunately but um, he he had five or six musicians from John O'Groats up in Scotland all the way down to Land's End in Cornwall. And as light hit each musician, they entered the, the chamber work. So you had the piano, then the strings and the percussion. And it was, I think, about between four and 8,000 people listened in. And it was right at the beginning of the pandemic. And to be connected orally with those other people who you didn't know, strangers, I found that really, really moving. I remember during the pandemic really responding to works of art and also movies and television that I feel were speaking to my condition. And sometimes it wasn't necessarily literal, although sometimes it was. I think about Bo Burnham's Outside. That was incredible, right? Incredible. Right? Things that really articulated that moment for me, and, and I'll always remember that. I think as a, as a final question to you, and, um, and thank you for these thoughtful answers, you have worked with really the greatest directors at work today. And I definitely count Guillermo and Adam in that group. And also people like Martin Scorsese and everyone else that you've worked with. I do wonder at this point in your career, if there are people that you are hoping still to work with or directors or work that you have seen from afar and said, oh yeah, I want to be in business with that person. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, top of the list comes Jane Campion. I mean, you know, who's, who's from my part of the world and, and I haven't had the good fortune to work with her yet. I mean, I'd love to work with uh, Josephine Decker and Ari Aster and I'd love to work with Tyler Perry, you know, in, in another capacity. Uh, Regina King, you know, I mean, there's so many people that I would love to work with. I think Maggie's beautiful film, um, The Lost Daughter, is, is wonderful. I'd love to work with Liv Ullman again. Yeah. You know, so there's, um, it's, that's the thing too, is it often in the theatre you will work with a director or an ensemble repeatedly, but you don't often get that chance in film. But, you know, I've got four children and I have to, I can't always do all the things that I'd, I'd, I'd love to do, but I have been incredibly blessed. You're absolutely right. You have an incredible filmography, and I know what you mean about having a second time with the director. Well, Dee Reese. Did I mention Dee Reese? I'd love to work with Dee Reese. She's amazing. So extraordinary, all of those filmmakers. And I really can see you in an Ari Aster film. I, I would love to see that as well, a horror film. Kate, thank you so much for spending some time and talking to the awardists today. This is such a wonderful interview. I appreciate it. And congratulations on everything. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks to Kate Blanchett for sitting down with me. Don't Look Up is on Netflix and Nightmare Alley is available in theaters. That's all from us for today. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Awardist. If you like what you heard, subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation with us going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials at EW on Twitter and Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at ClarissaNYC1 and Josh Rothkopf. We'll see you next week. This episode of The Awardist Podcast is hosted by Clarissa Cruz and Josh Rothkopf. Produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio. Executive produced by Shana Krokmal. Edited and mixed by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.